Welcome to episode one of season two of the Search with Candor podcast, recorded on Wednesday, the 12th of January 2022. My name is Mark Williams Cook, and today I'm joined by my new regular co host, Jack Chambers, and we will be discussing Google's page experience update coming to desktop, clever GTM hacks for snippets and redirects, the Systrict index watch and trend watch data, and index now. Search with Candor is sponsored by Systrix, the SEO's toolbox. If you want to find out more about their SEO toolset and take a look at their visibility index or dive into their huge SERPs archive, there's a trial available and you can also check out some of their excellent free tools, such as checking out the visibility index, Google Update Impact, doing keyword research, and you can compare your page speed at systrix.com SWC. At Systrix, S-I-S-T-R-I-X dot com SWC. SWC stands for Search with Candor. And that was Jack. Welcome, Jack. Thanks, Mark. It's 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 very weird being I, I was a listener, now I'm a co-host. <laughs> this shouldn't be a surprise for those of you that did listen to season one that Jack is going to be joining us as co-host for season two. Jack is an SEO specialist here at Canda, but more importantly, maybe more importantly, <laughs> is it more, more importantly, <laughs> more excitingly, here's a professional podcaster, mm. professional, semi-professional, semi-professional podcaster, but also a voiceover. Is it a voiceover artist? That's a very, there's a big debate whether, because I don't really act very much. I do more kind of like corporate kind of stuff. So I guess voiceover person, voiceover artist. I was just called a voiceover man by a client once and I was like, oh, that'd be, that's fine by me. So podcaster and voiceover man, Jack Chambers. <laughs> so question as a, as a voiceover man, mm. do you get the thing where you you don't like hearing the sound of your recorded voice because most people who I've done recordings with and including myself, I don't listen to a lot of my own recordings because I can't stand the sound of my voice. <laughs> but if you're doing voiceovers, you must be okay with it, right? Yeah, I'm totally fine. I'm completely numb to it at this point. Okay. I've done hundreds of hours of podcasting. I've been podcasting for about 10 years now and editing them for seven or eight. So I have heard myself talk about all kinds of things for nearly a decade. So I am not happy, but comfortable and numb to my own speaking voice at this point. And I hope you'll become comfortable with my speaking voice as well, listeners. Or at least numb to it. Yeah, at least numb to it. <laughs> at the very least, become numb to me and still appreciate that Mark knows what he's talking about. Shall we begin? We should do. Please do. Why don't you kick us off? Okay, I thought I would ease us in to our first episode of season two by talking about two fairly small contained things. The first being again, talking about Google's page experience update, which I'm sure we, we all know what this is now. So the Google page experience update is the core web vitals and the other things Google consider important for page experience like HTTPS, mobile friendly, etc. Now, up until this point, the page experience algorithm, which forms part of the overall algorithm algorithms that help our websites rank or not, has been only for mobile. And we did talk last year all the way back. I had to go and check. It was episode 112 all the way back in May. We talked about 
the page experience update rolling out to desktop. And Google has finally confirmed that this is going to happen next month. So from February, the scores that you will be getting in Google Search Console for desktop performance will be factored in for desktop results now. The, the only other sort of interesting tidbit that Google gave us was that the thresholds will be the same. That's the thresholds for performance. So Google's given us this traffic light, green, amber, red system for the core web vitals, uh, which, you can, which you can look up in their documentation. I won't go through them, but these will remain the same for desktop and mobile. That's interesting because desktops and mobiles kind of handle browsers very differently and, and particularly speed i think is a key here because as much as we're getting into 4g and 5g and you can get like gigabit connections with 5g these days in general you're going to be faster on a wired broadband connection or even a wi-fi connection with your laptop or whatever right so it's interesting they're using the same kind of benchmarks and regulations across both mobile and desktop because google have been pushing the whole not just mobile first but mobile only for so long now I find it interesting. They're like, oh, and also desktop. <laughs> They're kind of in finally introducing that as well. Yeah, I think the actual tweet when I read it from Google, they're a little bit sarcastic. They said something like for the remaining 500 and something <laughs> actual desktop computers that exist, which which as a gamer as well, you know, I've, I feel attacked by that because I'm going to have my desktop for many <laughs> years because I need to fit that graphics card in there. But yeah, you're right. One thing that uh, clients tend to notice when they look at these core web vitals, these performance scores in Search Console, is that they have different scores or different traffic light ratings for the desktop and mobile version. And even if the site's being delivered in the same way, they will be getting different scores. And that's because, as you've said, the numbers that we have in Search Console are based on the actual user data. So it's likely that mobile connections will be slower which is why you get that differential in the score. Yeah, and I think it's interesting. So from my experience going through that with clients and looking at Core Web Vitals and like you said, using the little traffic like system and stuff, you go through that and everybody sees their mobile score and freaks out. <laughs> it's usually the way. It's very often that the mobile score is lower than the desktop score. Yeah. So I'm interested to see how this will shift, like you said, for the few dozen people still using desktops these days, including you, Mark. And yeah, I'm, I'm intrigued to see how it will affect kind of reporting from, from us as an agency, like trying to convey these things to our clients and stuff. And I'm sure plenty of listeners as well, whether you're freelancing or working in an agency, or even if you're in-house and reporting to directors and, and managers and things like that, it's going to be interesting to see how it shifts and how people will be able to try and convey desktop a little bit differently. And and I think we've talked about it a few times before. And I know Rob, who has been on the show before, our PPC specialist here at Canda, has talked a lot about how more people use Bing and things like that because it's so business-led and so many people have that kind of, I'm on my desktop, so I'm going to do searching and, and all that kind of stuff at work. So is it more of kind of focus for people worrying about B2B stuff? That makes sense, right? Yeah, I think this is down to the a lot of companies, you know, they have their... Microsoft equipment dealt out and it's got Edge and it's got Bing and nobody cares enough to to try and change it or you know they haven't got the admin rights just use your default stuff you're given from yeah. from the IT company right you know IT department or whatever yeah yeah, yeah they, they haven't got the admin rights to Google install Chrome from Bing um, <laughs> and yeah and like I said I know Rob has talked about that before there's a significant kind of benefit to using like Microsoft ads Bing ads rather than Google ads because so many businesses are just using Bing as their default search engine and stuff like that. 
So I'm interested to see if people particularly worried about their, you know, if they have a particularly higher desktop user base, that could be very beneficial for them and could be an interesting way of kind of more accurately measuring that for them and their users. I guess I'd round that off with, with Core Web Vitals, I always approach this as a SEO is secondary thing, which is that if, in my opinion, if you're thinking about Core Web Vitals, we should do this because it's good for SEO. It's still, you're looking at it on its head because these performance metrics do make users happier. There is a million case studies showing how improved performance you know, especially on things like e-com sites or even, you know, lead gen sites, improve conversion rates. So it just directly affects the bottom line. So it's it's like a bonus that it affects SEO. But I'm absolutely sure now that, you know, Google has said, oh, hey, yeah, we're looking at this now that it will trigger more people into action. The second thing I wanted to touch on at the beginning of this episode was a really, really clever GTM hack by Valentin Bletzer. And I've talked about Valentin before. I recognized the name. So I had to go back deep into the archives of the show notes. And it was, it was a lot further back than I thought. It was episode 18. But this is actually a really cool way, I think, of by doing this podcast, I've, I've seen who keeps doing cool stuff. <laughs> because I keep referencing them. And Valentin's definitely one of these people. So if you don't follow him on Twitter, if you're on Twitter, I would recommend you do that. I'll put a link in the show notes at search.withcanda.co.uk. Um, but what Valentin has shared is a really neat bit of code for your Google Tag Manager that does two things. It's a little bit of JavaScript that firstly passes uh, well, does it in both cases, passes some data to analytics. Firstly, on redirect count. So that URL, you're accessing how many redirects uh, we had to go through to get there. But secondly, and in my opinion, a bit more interesting, it will pass the text fragment from a featured snippet, if there was one, into analytics. So we've all seen now, we've talked about it on the, the show before, where um, you'll do a search, normally quite a specific long tail search. Google will highlight some text on the page. You'll click it and they have that fragment highlighting that will show you where the relevant answer is on the page. So now that can be directly beamed into your analytics. I think this is really useful for, for, for two reasons. Firstly, the redirect count, I think, will be great for people maybe who aren't using cloud monitoring for their site uh, or aren't regularly, don't have the tools to do their own kind of simulated or actual crawls of the site. You want to avoid redirect chains wherever possible. Off the top of my head, I think it's uh, five redirects Googlebot will follow as like a hard limit before it just kind of gives up. So just having that built into your analytics and you can set up an alert on that is a really good way to to catch those redirect chains especially in larger teams because one of the things especially with the larger sites i've encountered working with clients is lots of people work on the site people don't necessarily talk to each other <laughs> they're changing things they're deleting products they're redirecting pages and before you know it you do get these redirect chains occur and the text fragments as well i think is really interesting because that gives you very granular insight into what parts of your content 
people are interested in. So ahead of the, okay, well, we wrote this article and we're getting visits from Google on it. And here's some of the key phrases, really specific case by case. Okay. They were jumping to this part, which is again, powerful information when it comes to looking at content auditing, what's working, what should expand on. And anecdotally, we experienced this in the office about an hour ago when we were talking about Brownian motion of all things. <laughs> and we, we, we Googled it because of course we did. We're SEOs. And the wrong answer came up in the featured snippet and we were all very confused. And then I was like, I'm pretty sure it's this. Pretty sure it's the random movement of molecules, <laughs> not molecules moving from a higher concentration to a lower concentration. And we were right and Google was wrong. And that's a perfect example of being able to be like, hey, my text preference might be wrong. Your featured snippet might actually be highlighting the wrong thing. Since we had the title apocalypse last year, that issue with Google pulling through the wrong information, even for medical advice, which was a big issue of like, Make sure you stick your fingers down your throat of the person who's choking. Like, <laughs> no, it's it's don't put your fingers down the throat of the person that's choking Google. Don't don't misquote me there. I think it's a good way of being able to analyze that very quickly without having to search for individual keywords and go through all your own data and all that kind of stuff. Like you said, setting up alerts on analytics is so useful for that kind of stuff and with the redirect chains as well because they're so easy to miss. Those little bits are so easy to miss and can make a huge difference for the user not clicking through because the text fragment is wrong or clicking on the wrong thing, getting stuck and leaving your website never to come back again kind of thing. That's a really interesting point actually about being able to take some responsibility for the fragment that Google is highlighting. Uh, in, that, in that case, when you pointed out about it, you know, we had incorrect medical information that could potentially be dangerous to someone. I did see some conversations where you were saying, well, who's who's actually liable then for this if <laughs> yeah if yeah. someone goes and does this because they they googled this and this is what it told them to do I but mean, that's is, not is that the thing you should be doing when somebody's choking is quick i'll get my phone and google it well the search Start results the come back pretty quick <laughs> yeah true true <laughs> are they faster than 999 <laughs> or 911 probably the at the moment <laughs> um so yeah i think yeah that's because it would, you know, it could potentially reflect on your brand if people don't go to the page. Because this is the thing as well about these zero-click results and people not bothering clicking on an actual page when they don't have to. Talking about medical advice specifically, like your money, your life is a hot topic in when we talk about EAT and stuff like that, talking about authority and all that kind of stuff in terms of your website. And if you're a medical advice journal or you're selling products and also writing content around your medical products and stuff like that, does that fact that you've got the wrong information on the Google search results affect your authority? It certainly does in the eye of the user because most people don't understand how featured snippets work and assume, oh, they've written the wrong thing on their article. 99% of people aren't professional SEOs, don't understand how the algorithm works and how featured snippets are pulling through. I'm sure plenty of our listeners do and, and we do working in the industry, but that brings in questions of authority, right? And you could have the most immaculately written, beautiful article that is relevant and you know got the correct written by someone who's very authoritative in that subject and all that kind of thing but yeah pulls through wrong information from the wrong bit for the wrong search result and people start questioning your legitimacy and again liability stuff like that your money your life is an important thing because those things matter to people whether it's investing in things or medical advice or whatever it is people turn to search engines for that kind of information all the time and there's a reason why Search engines kind of emphasize that as some of the most important information. So if you want to check that out, again, show notes are at search.withcanda.co.uk and do give Valentine a follow on Twitter if you don't already.
So we're at the midpoint in the show, and as I mentioned at the start of the show, we are sponsored by Systrix. You can go to systrix.com slash trends and find a lovely thing called Trendwatch. And because Systrix are now working with us, they have also established a data journalism team who are going to be getting you lovely folks out there fantastic, fantastic data. If you subscribe to their newsletter, you can go to their blog. And of course, we will be delving in each and every week into whether it's Trendwatch or, as we'll get to in a moment, Index Watch as well. They're going to be finding us some unique data and they have an amazing team of data journalists out there, including people who have been on the show before, like Lily Ray, and fantastic other people who are really kind of doing some unique and interesting research and getting data to you in a consumable way. So Trendwatch is, you may have seen it before, the kind of Google Trends kind of graph that you see as things progress over the years, more people start searching for it and all that kind of stuff. What Systrix is doing in Trendwatch is giving you 10 long-term growth trends every month in a newsletter. And this can help you plan out your content or have a think about what you want to be targeting next when you're recording your own podcast or creating YouTube videos or whatever it is. You're thinking about creating things to go along with those trends and kind of match those topics. With this month's Trendwatch, we've got some interesting things. Would you like to dive into anything in the Trendwatch, Mark? I would actually like to start with the Index okay, Watch. Okay, let's kick off with Index Watch then, shall we? Yeah, so the Index Watch is something we've talked about before, again, on the show. This is a yearly piece of information research by Systrix. And I'm just going to read out the methodology for you and our listeners to make sure I get this 100% correct and give everyone some, some context as to what they're hearing. So Systrix Index Watch uh, the data I'm going to be talking about is their top 250 winning domains of 2021. And that's defined by using Systrix Visibility Index. So the index assigns a visibility value to every domain analyzed within the Google search results. And the data reflects the visibility of domains within Google UK's index. And this is slightly different to when we're talking about things like trends, because the visibility index data is solely focused on visibility fluctuations resulting from algorithmic changes and does not reflect external factors such as seasonality, weather, national holidays. I will put a link again in the show notes if you want to find out more in depth about how visibility index is calculated. On the top 250 um, winning domains, there was some interesting, um, well, unexpected, I would say, <laughs> unexpected things on there um, this year for me, which was, and the first one Systrix mentioned was, they've called it the rise of reference sites. So this is sites like Merriam-Webster, Collins Dictionary, that these sites have seen stable organic growth throughout 2021. And I was a little bit surprised by that because, you know, there's so much discussion about zero-click search results, Google's knowledge graph, and essentially them becoming this knowledge engine and stopping showing web pages, basically, and just, you know, scraping the information and putting it into <laughs> their own knowledge graph and, and answering people's questions. So I was a little bit surprised when um, we see sites like these reference sites coming up. But then when I think about it in more depth, we do have some other search features that are powered by the data from those sites. They are, they do tend to be more reliable, especially when Google is taking 
this featured snippet type approach rather than actually using its own um, knowledge graph as well. There's kind of tying into what we were just talking about in medical advice, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And there's been all there's been all kinds of examples. Um, I mean, I think the it was the year before that, or was it 2019, maybe. I mean, I did a whole article around Google trying to tell you through their featured snippets and knowledge graphs how many legs different animals had oh yeah i've seen this so this was how many like, legs do you have mark yeah <laughs> so this was like you know saying ducks had four legs and rabbits had 200 legs and snakes had six legs and it was just completely wrong um and they've they fixed it since i like to think specifically because of uh my because tiny blog yeah. post i yeah. wrote they've, they've definitely had problems and it makes them look silly you know to be you know because as humans they're really basic questions <laughs> and we always talk about how smart google is and this ai and this knowledge graph and entities and oh it understands context and then it like can't tell you how many legs <laughs> a duck has which is something like a four-year-old can tell you exactly yeah, yeah. so in some ways when i thought about it more okay the reference site thing if it can really trust them does make sense what particularly interested me after I got over the unexpectedness, was that Systrix specifically looked at the Collins Dictionary site, which had seen stable growth, but they noticed it did have a particular boost. And they think the main contributor to this was them redirecting the AMP versions, so the accelerated mobile pages of their dictionary pages to their kind of overarching dictionary directory. And Systrix sites, and I agree with them, it's probably down to when Google announced part, as part of their page experience update, which we talked about at the, the top of the show, there's no longer the requirement to have AMP format pages to appear in top stories. And they don't give basically preferential treatment to AMP pages anymore. As long as you are hitting uh, the thresholds that are required within Core Web Vitals, you'll be treated the same. Again, this generated a lot of discussion around, well, maybe we should just remove the AMP pages because basically you're, you're pretty much trying to run two sets of web pages. It's more things to maintain. It's more things to break. Um, there's tricky situations uh, that sometimes when you're trying to translate pages to get them to work nicely in the, in the AMP format. And Collins Dictionary has just taken this, you know, they've just cut them off, redirected them. And this is just another, I guess, another notch in the belt of, okay, we've got another example where this has gone really well. So everything has, has panned out perfectly. So this gives me more confidence mm. with clients maybe who are, you know, managing an AMP version of the site as well, but they have a decent, fast, performing well page experience main site to say, actually, maybe we can just combine the two. I think it's interesting. Systrix also touch on like more people working from home and stuff like that as we've kind of understood from working home ourselves over the last couple of years, you're having to Google more stuff with like, oh, how do I spell this thing before I send this email? All that kind of stuff. So I think having kind of Google giving more kind of authority and shifting the fact that these quality references are actually being given more search prominence in that way, like you said, rather than Google kind of cheekily scraping their information, just stealing it from them, actually giving them prominence and I've heard of Miriam Webster. I've heard of Collins Dictionary. I'm sure they. I'm sure they'll get around to it though. <laughs> but I think having that kind of thing is is interesting because it's something I would never really think about in terms of how trends are moving and all that kind of stuff. But now we really are seeing how much working from home is affecting search results and how it's affecting 
the authority of some pages and the prominence and visibility of pages as well. We saw this in the, the Trendwatch data as well. Um, I was looking through the examples in Trendwatch and one that stuck out to me was um, searches around bowling, which were <laughs> essentially inversely proportional, it looks like, to lockdowns. Yes, so there funny was, that. Yeah. <laughs> what a coincidence. Yeah, there was just very little general interest in bowling. And then everyone went into lockdown and then we got let out and everyone's like, I want to go bowling. We I've never weirdly, wanted to go bowling more in my life. Weirdly enough, I was guilty of that and I'm not entirely <laughs> sure why. <laughs> I've been bowling like two or three times in between lockdowns and I'm not entirely sure. Having been bowling like a handful of times in my entire 30 years before that for some reason. Well, we mentioned we actually mentioned this to, to get the team bowling literally yesterday or the, yeah, the, day, yeah. the day before. <laughs> so I don't know if big bowling is in on this or... <laughs> But it, it just made me think that, you know, a lot of people search-wise, trend-wise are focused on what has changed while we are in a pandemic. It's also worth looking at the trends and thinking about what's going to bounce back, you know, I was going to say post-pandemic, maybe that's a bit too optimistic mm, for right yeah. now, between yeah, <laughs> between things. <laughs> between variants. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> But, but that I thought that was a really great example. Was there anything that, that you found particularly interesting? There's in the a couple of things. I think, I think one of them ties into it is the background remover, which I find hilarious because I'm totally guilty of this as a man with no graphic experience at all. Uh, I think John here at Canada has described me and you as like the anti-graphic designers, the anti-artists. Mark and I are very much similar in that sense of no like functional, functionality over... It's a badge of honor. <laughs> exactly. We wear it with pride. But yeah, people Googling background remover, it's like, that makes so much sense. And especially people working from home, not having somebody in their team to be like, oh, you're the Photoshop guy. Could you go and do this, please? And having like, but we need, I need this image for this thing quick. Just get an AI to do it for me. And because AI becomes so powerful, and I know you've talked about this on the show plenty of times, Mark, where AI are talking about content and all that kind of stuff and how much that's going to affect the SEO industry. Even simple things like, my phone can now like remove a person in the background of a photo and stuff. It's absolutely crazy. And even if it's something as simple as, you know, you're listing stuff on your e-commerce site and you need a white transparent background to make everything stand out and make everything uniform, it makes sense more people are searching that kind of stuff as things are moving more and more online and less people have access to people who know about Photoshop and stuff. I didn't actually know you could do that just straight on your phone now and remove people. Because I know someone that started a business removing there you go, people see? from photos. So they're obviously, you know, they're out of business now. And actually to um to get back at John, because I know he won't listen to this. Um <laughs> John, for the cover of this episode, we did the little season two, the with the white and pink background with Yumi and Snoop on it. Yeah, yeah. I know he used an automatic AI background <gasps> for that. Shame. Yeah. Shame him. Oh, shame. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so even he is not above it. There you go. Creative directors are not above using AI background to move it. <laughs> uh, something else I wanted to touch on is an interesting one. It's just four letters that they highlighted here in Trendwatch was TTRS. I think it's very funny, written by Steve here from Systrex. He talks about how it might be the Audi TTRS because he's a car fan. And I was like, cool, don't know about cars. Was it a headphone jack? No, that's a TRRS. Like, okay. In actual fact, it was Times Tables Rockstars, which is an educational YouTube channel getting basically kids to learn maths in a really fun, energetic kind of way. I think that's really interesting and really cool because I think Again, with more people learning at home, tying into pandemics and people working from home and all that kind of stuff, 
having your kids be able to educate themselves while they're at home instead of like, oh, you've got a lunch break from your, you know, from homeschooling type stuff. Go and watch this educational YouTube video. And I've watched a couple myself. I watch loads of YouTube in my my day to day anyway. So I thought I'd go and check them out and see what kind of production values and stuff. It's surprisingly good. And what surprised me the most was that at the moment, at time recording, this may change. You never know with YouTube. (laughs) They have fewer than 10,000 subscribers on the channel, which blew my mind for this had come up in conversation with a few friends of mine um, the other day. And I'm getting to that age now where everyone is having kids and all that kind of stuff. So all my friends are talking about what they're going to do, obviously teaching them at a very young age before they're going to preschool and all that kind of stuff. And they were talking about times they were rock stars. So I'd actually heard of them. So I thought, oh, it must be huge. It must be tens of millions of subscribers. Famously, like some of the most watched things in the history of YouTube is like little educational things on like Russian cartoons for Russian speaking children and stuff. It's 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 a huge market on YouTube is basically what I'm saying. But they actually have huge view accounts, but with relatively few subscribers. And I think that's a trend we're seeing now in YouTube where we're moving away from the click the like button, smash that subscribe button, typical YouTuber spiel that you get at the end of every kind of typical content creator video. And more people are just being picked up by the algorithm. You're trying to optimize that thumbnail. You're trying to optimize your page titles, essentially your your video titles in this case, to make sure you're being picked up by YouTube's algorithm. Rather than driving people to the subscriptions, you're just hoping you're going to get picked up by the algorithm in the future. Yeah, I think that's hopefully like a healthy thing for YouTube moving away from this you know, top hundred people with subscribers. Because one thing I did notice over the years with YouTube is, you know, you log on, you get the videos and it does just seem to be the same major content creators over and over again. So that can make more room, if you like, for new content creators. Google, especially I know with Google ads has been pushing really heavily trying to fill up their inventory with with uh, more ads. And I occasionally see um, ads for trying to get me to subscribe to YouTube every once in a while, every, every minute. Like YouTube premium kind of thing. Yeah, constantly. Absolutely. <laughs> they just won't leave it alone. But I think, I think that's probably healthy for the YouTube environment. It actually maybe makes it more of a strategic opportunity for smaller companies who maybe, you know, can't collaborate with people with 10 million subscribers, but have something decent to make. Yeah, if you can create something that can go viral, that can get picked up. This is particularly true for family-friendly stuff as well, because YouTube has been really shifting more towards a family-friendly approach. There are certain limits for like using swear words and things in your opening few minutes of video, and you'll get demonetized and all this kind of stuff that happens in the YouTube space. And I think having something like this that has really kind of exploded over the last few months really kind of demonstrates the power of kid-friendly, family-friendly content that can take over people's mind share in that way. And, you know, I'd heard of Times Tables Rock Stars even before Systrix had brought up in this, and I don't have children. Like, I'd heard of it myself already, so I thought that was pretty interesting. And, yeah, I'm very interested to see, even outside of, you know, we, we kind of focus on SEO in terms of search engines and stuff. YouTube is a big side of that as well, and as a man who searches a lot of stuff on YouTube all the time, it's interesting to see where their algorithm changes are also shifting and, and changing the landscape of the content there as well. So if you do want to subscribe to their newsletter, you can go to systrix.com slash trends. That's for Trendwatch. And Indexwatch is available on their blog, which will also be linked to in the show notes as well. Thank you, Systrix. And uh, yeah, we'll get more stuff from them next week. We'll be delving into plenty more stuff, including the Index Watch losers of the year in a couple of weeks as well. So that'll be interesting to see kind of the, the other side of the coin, if you will. Losers is always more fun. <laughs> <laughs> in general, losers is more fun.
So moving on from Index Watch, we're going to talk about Index Now, which I think has been a hot topic over the last few months in SEO. And what kind of triggered me thinking about talking about on the show is there is now a WordPress plugin for Index Now for Microsoft Bing. And Bing is kind of a thing that has been pushing Index Now in, in a lot of different ways. Index Now, essentially, for those of you who don't know, is a way of sending a ping to the search engines to come and crawl new content or a deleted page or an updated page on your site without having to recrawl the entire site from scratch, which is how most search engines do it. There has been some pushback from Google. <laughs> Pretty much only Bing has adopted it so far and a couple of other search engines in the kind of wider space. But yeah, we're not yet pushing through with uh, Google is kind of thinking about testing it and, and dipping their toes in the water. And because they are kind of the the big search engine, it's interesting to see how Bing is kind of pushing this forward and really kind of being the kind of, I don't know, the maybe the forefront, the leader in Index Now, which is interesting. And I think Index Now is something that just just the description it gets SEO salivating, right? <laughs> Content people were like, oh my God, I can tell them when to crawl my site when I want them to crawl my site. That sounds that sounds perfect. Yeah, I, I think it's an interesting topic for several reasons. I understand, I think, from a business strategy point of view, why Google's been a bit quiet about the whole thing, which is from running a search engine, maintaining an index is the most technologically challenging and expensive thing to do. And it would seem, you know, algorithms aside, that Google definitely has an advantage infrastructurally over many search engines. So if, and I don't even necessarily think this is the case, but if there was a widely adopted protocol that damaged that competitive advantage Google had, they obviously wouldn't want that to happen. Mm. Um, you know, certainly obvious from the various things over the last few months, the papers that came out um, about Google, various Google practices that they are um, very keen to protect their profits and competitive advantage. They are one of the biggest companies in the world for a reason. Alphabet is is big business <laughs> and they want to keep it that way. But yeah, we're seeing not just Bing, but Yandex and Wix and OnCrawl and quite a few of the kind of smaller search devices and search engines going through it and pulling through this kind of new protocol. I can imagine it being abused. I kind of joke there of like, oh, it's the every SEO's dream, right? But I'm very interested to see how it can be used effectively, like we said, to, to manage kind of like maintaining that index and the smaller kind of anyone that's not Google essentially does not have the power to just be constantly crawling and updating every website. And it's something we encounter here at the agency. I'm sure it's something plenty of our listeners and everybody who has a website that isn't one of the big like international news sites. It can take weeks or even months for things to come through, even when you're you know posting a new blog post or updating a page or deleting a page. It can take a long, long time for that to actually be crawled and indexed and pulled through to the search results. Yeah, this is um the the second half of what I was going to mention, which was especially last year. I mean, Google had a lot of technical issues last year with indexing and i think as i've said before that they have made some tweaks in terms of the minimum level of what they deem to be quality before they will index a page because again that's something especially when you start out in seo that isn't clearly understood which is that 
crawling and indexing are two separate things. Yeah, in that, yeah. You know, your pages may be crawled, but Google may actually determine that for whatever reason, they're not good enough to be included in the index. And you see that all the time in Search Console reports and things like that, right? Yeah. And it's certainly, I've seen one of the more things SEOs are vocal about, which is, oh, this new page, like you say, isn't getting indexed or this you know, blog post took four days to get indexed or especially with bigger and newer sites, these pages that are further down in the hierarchy, it can sometimes take weeks for them to, to appear. So especially whether it's, you know, whether technically it's kind of crawl now and not index now, but the, the name, the name is attractive. At, at it's, least. A, it's a sexy name. Yeah. yeah and, you know, and people are hammering that um, Google request indexing tool. Um, <laughs> so there, there's definitely an audience out there for webmasters and SEOs to say, yeah, please index this page now. However, <laughs> while there may be this audience that desperately ferociously wants everything indexed immediately salivating for it we're salivating for it i I found it interesting that so yoast actually are not supporting index now and i just wanted to read out a few uh, tweets from them and this is uh, actually back from uh, october and as far as i know their stance hasn't changed uh, which is yesterday microsoft being announced index now a new standard to quote unquote, instantly index content. They do so in conjunction with Yandex. We've not added support to Yoast SEO for it yet for the simple reason that we don't see the value yet. Ever since XML sitemaps were conceived, URL discovery, as far as we're concerned, is a solved problem. For most sites, getting search engines to crawl content is not a problem, which is what I alluded to. Crawl now, not index now. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Yoast SEO generates XML sitemaps and it can even ping search engines when those change. I do understand Bing wants to become more efficient. It used to be one of the worst offenders in terms of aggressive crawling. That's still probably true. But then goes on to make an interesting point saying there's a few other tweets between that, but this is what I found quite interesting. Additionally, a post is never updated on its own. So if we've got a blog post, we update it. When you update a post, These URLs are also updated. This is obviously referring to WordPress here. Uh, The author archive, the tags and categories you added to the post and the blog index page. And that's just the the default case. So what Yoast is saying is a simple update. For instance, say you made a typo in one of your blog posts, you go and do that. And that's going to trigger a whole cascade of update effects because all these pages are going to be updated. And WordPress doesn't have a minor edit type checkbox like Wikipedia does. So you wouldn't be sending a few simple pings. You'd be sending dozens of them quite quickly. So I found it again interesting that we've got this discussion around, well, there is a little bit of a difference between crawl now and index now, and we've got sitemaps. <laughs> so is it going to fix anything or is this maybe, again, just a way for Bing specifically to try and increase its index size without having to do all this crawling, which they've been quite aggressive at. And to kind of spin off of that, there's an interesting article I wanted to touch on talking about this competition between search engines. And I mentioned, we all know, if you're listening to this podcast, you probably already know Google is number one by a considerable margin. But it's actually interesting to think about how the other search engines 
handle their indexing and handle their database and stuff like that. And there's a really interesting uh, quote here from an article on fastcompany.com, again, linked in the show notes, where they talk about the high cost of maintaining that index, as you just touched on, Mark. The, the decision of many large web pages to block most crawlers significantly limits new search engine entrance. So that's companies coming up with their own search engines. There's a lot of talk about Apple coming up with their own one that's going to be happening in the next few years because Apple and Google will just forever compete for who owns the world, I guess, <laughs> between them and Tesla and SpaceX and <laughs> Amazon, basically. And they go on to say, today, the only English language search engines that maintain their own comprehensive web-based index are Google and Bing. And what that means is every other search engine pretty much that you're thinking of, whether that's kind of, we touched on Yandex earlier, whether it's DuckDuckGo or something like that, they're kind of piggybacking off of the Bing index side of things which I think is really interesting. So we're almost seeing this kind of conglomeration of search engines pulling from this index and kind of trying to fight <laughs> the Goliath that is Google. How did this happen? It, it feels like with Bing that Bing's become the rebel alliance now, <laughs> that Microsoft is now How the is rebel Microsoft alliance. How is Microsoft the good guy? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Google is definitely the empire in this case. And yeah, uh, to, to kind of touch on some some stats here, it's pretty pretty significant. I mentioned... Google is the biggest buyer, significant margin, just under 90% of all indexes and, and all search results are through Google, to put, to put it bluntly. And to, to touch on DuckDuckGo specifically, because they're something that's becoming a bit more popular, these kind of privacy-focused search engines and, and browsers like Brave. I don't know if you guys have heard of that before. And, and DuckDuckGo is very much a kind of Google tracks you, we don't, is their kind of uh, tagline that they go through. And I think as people are becoming more and more switched on and as you know hackers and people trying to breach your security in various ways are becoming more and more sophisticated and interested in your personal data, and as we share unwillingly, often, <laughs> often is the case, your personal data as you search and as you browse and things like that, more people are worried about protecting their own data and their search information and their login information through their browsers and stuff. So I think we will see, and I know you and I, Mark, have often moved away from the more kind of friendly things like like Edge and Chrome and things like that, moving to things towards more like Brave and, and DuckDuckGo. But DuckDuckGo actually only accounts for around about 0.6% of the search traffic of the world. But they're seeing a significant growth, like a really, uh, again, we'll link this in the show notes. It is quite a spectacular graph, the kind of graph I would love to see for a website of mine or a client of mine. And it's an impressive one to see how much they're actually growing compared to the other search engines in that similar kind of space that are underneath the, the Google kind of umbrella. You said, what, 0 0.6? So 0.6, yeah. I mean... Like, to be fair, that's still a lot of search. <laughs> that's 0.6 of trillions and trillions. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So <laughs> the, the other thing, again, I think it's important. Yes, Google has this, like, you know, in most markets has this stranglehold. But search engines that have, you know, 3, 4, 5%, 0.6%, that's still a lot of searches. And kind of working with Bing and making sure you're doing what you need to for being and ranking the site well there is a way of hedging your bets. As as Jack said, you know, DuckDuckGo actually relies on Bing for, for quite a lot of um, search result data, right? So if you can get your site ranking well in Bing and a search engine like DuckDuckGo continues this fairly meteoric rise, you're going to be visible in that. So this is a way 
to hedge your bets and and maybe compete in markets where um where you know where the competition isn't quite so hot to go outside of the english language english speaking kind of countries and things like that right so looking at the statistics here google is 91.4 percent for 2021 in terms of search engine market share bing is of course second but at 3.14 that is such a dramatic drop off but you're totally right mark the if you combine that with DuckDuckGo's 0.66 you've got yandex at 0.92 then yahoo at 1.53 and baidu at 1.76 Add that all together, you're getting towards sort of like six, seven percent total, which is almost twice as much as Bing by itself. So you would hopefully get that cascade effect. And as we said, if you see the growth of these smaller, again, trying to target slightly different audiences, going for the more kind of privacy kind of things, but they still build off of the Bing search results, maybe Bing is the, is the future. Use DuckDuckGo. Never in a million years, no. Never, never once. <laughs> Have you not? I had it on my phone for a year. I, I tried. Did using you do a little experiment? A yeah, no, oh, I cool. tried. I and I found that when you do a search on DuckDuckGo, you can use a exclamation mark G to do that search on Google. It would just oh, interesting. The search on Google, and I found myself when I was searching for things in a rush. I was using exclamation mark G because I was just like, look, Duck, Duck, Go, I haven't got time for you to mess me around. And then after a year... Let's be real, Duck, Duck, Go. You're great, but... After a year, I did end up going back um, to, to Google. But I think it's important to try these things and not just, you know, stick with what you know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, but I tried it. It wasn't for me at this point. <laughs> but like we said, we're seeing huge growth here. So maybe in a couple of years... We could be adopting DuckDuckGo across the board. We could Who be knows? Whole industries built around DuckDuckGo optimization. Who knows? <laughs> Probably not. Probably not. We, we are a slave to the Google overlords, unfortunately. <laughs> Thank you to Systrix for their support. If you want to find out more, like I said, at the top of the show and in the middle of the show about their SEO toolkit, you can have a look at your visibility index. Like I said, definition is in the show notes. You can dive into their huge SERPs archive. There's a trial available and you can check out some free, excellent tools such as checking that visibility index, going finding out the impact of Google updates on your site, doing keyword research and comparing your page speed. You can go to systrix.com slash SWC. That's SWC as in search with candor. And that is systrix at S-I-S-T-R-I-X dot com. Thanks again to Systrix for their support of season two of Search with Candor. And we will be back in one week's time on Monday, the 24th of January with episode two. And until then, from myself and Jack, I hope you have a wonderful week.